Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and my fellow video essayist, Tom Vanderlinden from the channel Like Stories of Old, where we seek to explore the depth of what cinema has to offer. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting us in one of two ways. You can go to our Patreon, the link is in the description, or you can go to patreon.com slash cinema of meaning, or you can go to nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning, or follow the link in the description where you can sign up for Nebula and listen to all of our episodes an entire week early, as well as get access to our bonus exclusive episodes on Nebula. This week, we're talking about Ryan Johnson's follow-up to the original Knives Out, the sequel, Glass Onion. Tom, this was one, we I think we both watched it over the holidays, but mm-hmm. you, you said, let's talk about it. What made you interested in discussing Glass Onion on the podcast? Well, I really enjoyed the first one. I actually rewatched that one as well. I watched Glass Onion twice now. Once, uh, the first time the day it came out. Um, and I just really had a good time with it. I think it's a very fun murder mystery, just like the first, um, even though I think thematically it does a few things differently. And there's a few things I'm not... I, I have a few mixed feelings, which is probably the main reason I want to talk about it, because... yeah. The thing I love about this podcast is that I usually go in with certain things I not feel <laughs> certain about, and then uh, we somehow find some insights into it uh, along the way. Yeah. Unfortunately, usually not until the end, but... Uh, <laughs> right. That's why you have to listen to the end of the podcast. <laughs> Sometimes it just takes time to kind of go through all the, the, yeah. the nitty gritty of it. And um, But anyways... Yeah, I watched them back to back. I do think the first one has my preference um, because it just oozes that kind of clue board game vibes, which I really enjoy. It has like the classic Victorian era house, all the classical elements that you expect in a murder mystery like that. And uh, but also that one also, I think, had an interesting twist that will probably get back to at some point in the discussion on this one. But for me, what Glass Onion was was about for me or what kind of were my what what got my interest about it is that it's essentially it's almost like a non-mystery presenting itself as a mystery and then because yeah. you know there's the whole metaphor with the glass onion something that seems layered and complex but in reality it's completely inside the whole you, time completely right. I, you can pierce right through it transparent yeah. that's the word I'm looking right. for and i think my main question is that there's some like little issues that I have with the movie, especially towards the ending. But like my main interest was regarding the construction of a story that deconstructs nothingness, basically. That Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's a deconstruction of a, not just of the genre, but also certain expectations that we have as the audience. Yeah. And there's some elements of that, which Johnson also did in The Last Jedi, which I'm also feeling like a little bit iffy about like if you deconstruct something like a theme or an expectation and then how how do you balance out between oh it's supposed to be stupid or or you know or is that still or does that still count does that count as a meaningful commentary can you make something meaningful out of like the nothing or does that does it just leave you with with nothing (laughs) yes yeah i'm not sure if i'm making sense but that's kind of like some friction I experienced Yes, with the thematic nature of this movie, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if our audience will get it, but I know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> because I think I felt the same thing. And that's, that's probably the biggest thing I'm interested to talk about is that friction. Also, just he brings up a lot of interesting commentary and themes here that I kind of, I have mixed feelings about. So it, it'll be fun to get into that, kind of what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. I agree that I like the first in this series more. I think like for me, one of the things that I felt iffy about with The Glass Onion was this movie for me doesn't quite work as well as like a, a genre mystery film. It works pretty well as like a social commentary comedy but it like it didn't give me the feeling that i want to get out of a mystery genre which maybe we'll get into was that intentional etc i don't know we'll find out but 
I felt like the first one actually did that better. But I, I like the whole premise of what Ryan Johnson is trying to do with these movies. I think it was the Hollywood Reporter uh, writer roundtable or director's roundtable, maybe. And mm-hmm. He was talking on there about how everybody does these kind of Agatha Christie mystery, you know, thr- mystery films as period pieces. And mm-hmm. Because that's kind of where we place the genre in our mind because that's when, you know, it was at sort of its height with the Agatha Christie novels and stuff like that. But, you know, the interesting thing about this, and I'm just restating what Ryan Johnson says in that roundtable, you can go listen to it. But the interesting thing about that is those books at the time were contemporary. They were like Mm. commenting on culture and they weren't period pieces. And so to really fulfill that genre in the way that someone like Agatha Christie was, you kind of have to make this contemporary thing that has these characters that come from our own society and is commenting on society. So anyway, he was just articulating that that's kind of his vision for these movies and part of it. And I think that's a really fun premise that people should be exploring. And so I just like the idea that he's making these movies that are unabashedly contemporary. They're not, he's not trying to make this timeless classic that's going to live up forever. It's just like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, what are people thinking about right now? It's COVID, it's vaccines, it's, you know, billionaires, all these things, renewable energy. And I'm just going to put all that stuff in a movie. And I think there's something very like fun about that on the surface, how successful that ends up being, we can get into. But yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to sort of discuss here i think some of that contemporariness might actually age better over time yeah it's hard to say but you know yeah sometimes you watch an old movie and there'll be like this obscure reference to something that was relevant back then but that's since gone completely obsolete and kind of forgotten but i can imagine there might be like especially with regards to COVID, like that i think people right now are kind of like for me at least i'm kind of I don't want to see it in a movie. I'm kind of tired of it. Like, um, but I can imagine like not to compare this to something like the Second World War, but like after that, like directly after that, people didn't want to see these deep dive like reflections of the wartime. People right. just want to kind of wanted to move on. And I feel like we're in a similar state now where people kind of want to just move on from COVID. But I can imagine like maybe 10 years down the road, people look back and they're like, oh yeah, that's kind of what it was back then. And maybe yeah. even like 20 or 30 years later when there's a new generation that hasn't experienced it, hopefully, it might actually be this little relic uh, that captures something yeah. about what it meant to be alive in COVID times, to say it very dramatically. But Right. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it also relates to kind of a concept which I think is true most of the time, which mm-hmm. is that if you want to actually make something more universal, a lot of times the best way to do that is to make something very specific. That applies to characters a lot of time, character stories, where if you try to tell this story about a character that just applies to everyone's life and you try to make it too universal, it can just feel flat and empty. But if you really delve into what specifically makes that character them and makes them tick, you can Mm -hmm. find the stuff that is more universal to all people often in this like hyper specificity. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to kind of setting and time as well. It can break down, but I think if you more directly comment on what's going on now, you can find things within that that are more universal than if you're just trying to vaguely make something that kind of feels timeless uh, and it can end up being mm-hmm. more flat. Anyway, that's a tangent about storytelling in general, I think. Yeah. but. It's at play here. But I do have to say, like, about the COVID stuff, it's mostly present in the early part of the movie, like the setup before they go to the island. We'll do a quick rundown of the story later, but uh, just to finish off this quick COVID thing, I do like that Johnson did use it actually to reveal character and also it, it both reveals something about the characters in this specific story, but it also reveals, it has a like a meta layer of, the right. types of responses that people had towards COVID. Like you yeah. see there's one, the science guy, he has the most advanced mask, so to say, like right. he's the most yeah. uh, effective one. And he's the one who's 
concerned about keeping his distance, like he's the one who's following the rules. And then there's the Twitter woman, the, the model, uh, the <laughs> yeah, Kate Hudson's yeah. character. She just has this, like almost like a veil that's with, with holes in it. It's like yeah. purely performative. And <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the politician has one that keeps falling down and it, it just keeps slipping off. And it's only there when it's like, eh, it's like a half committed, but not really mostly performative. And then there's Miles Braun, Edward Norton's character. He comes with this really weird mouth spray uh, that supposedly yeah. does something. It's not spe specified. Probably it does nothing, but it's kind of the, the techie response. Like, oh, let's innovate our way out of this through something that looks shiny, but probably isn't that effective, which captures a lot about the nature of his character, as we'll get into later. But I should say it's a, it's not Miles Braun at that point. It's the Ethan Hawke cameo working for yeah, Miles yeah, in, Braun, in, which, yeah. right, right, which I found disappointing because when Ethan Hawke showed up, I was like, oh, cool, a cool, fun Ethan Hawke character. And then he never, <laughs> he never shows up again. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was a very teasing mm -hmm. cameo. But, but yeah, you're totally right in that it's, he's not just, there's maybe like a few kind of cheap jokes in there where it's like, ooh, ha ha, COVID stuff, mm -hmm. you know, but, more, but he is being slightly more nuanced than just kind of pointing a finger at like, ooh, masks happened. You know, he's like you're saying, he's actually using that to develop the characters and do, you know, set up some interesting groundwork about who they are as people mm -hmm. and those and how they yeah. interact with the world and that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, and the, the last one was the Dave Bautista's character. He's the kind oh, of yes, manosphere yes. dude who doesn't wear a mask <laughs> yeah. at all. He's somewhere between like a Joe Rogan and a Andrew Tate. Miles yeah. Braun is kind of this vague Elon Musk character. Mm -hmm. And different characters have sort of real world analogs. Not yeah. all of them have like an exact one. And they're not, they're not exact, but it's a fun game to play to kind of be like, mm. who was in Ryan Johnson's mind when he was, when he was writing this character? I think it's especially funny because the Miles Braun character became more Elon Musky in, in hindsight, probably yes. because of the yeah. Twitter takeover, which I'm pretty sure hadn't. No, this was filmed in 2020 or something. Yeah, yeah it, had, it wouldn't have happened. But yeah. he obviously became much more prominent in like the public sphere yeah. since then and this is jumping way yeah. ahead but there's a painting of i didn't notice it the first time but there's a painting of kanye in one of the rooms mm. like holding a, a golden grail and he's like depicted as a saint in the background and i was like was that a prescient also like a i mean kanye's been controversial yeah. for a long time so mm. i can imagine but that's another element that just like took on even more meaning since whenever this was filmed but I also maybe they doctored Kanye in in the background with with mm. VFX or something that's not outside the realm of feasibility. Yeah, I was thinking maybe we should do a very quick recap of maybe yes. the first Knives Out also just to see what was what kind of series is established here and what Johnson's sure. vision was for whatever this is going to be in the future. Initially, we had Knives Out, which was as we talked about this kind of clue board game type ish murder mystery where you have this very eccentric detective played by uh, Daniel Craig, uh, Benoit Blanc, who comes in with this really funny accent. And it, it's pretty much his series. Like he's the only character to carry over into this next mystery. And uh, but in the first movie, he basically comes into this scene, this like the, this patriarchal head of the family apparently committed suicide, but it seems like a little bit iffy. So there's uh, Benoit Blanc to investigate. And then it turns out there's a few twists and turns. And uh, it, it kind of focuses on the other central character, the nurse of the um, the old man. But what it comes down to, it was basically, it started out as this murder mystery, but then pretty quickly on there, at least to me, like there was this twist where it was revealed that we already had the, like the, the, the kind of revelation that you expect at the end already happened like 30 minutes in right. where it's revealed that uh, this nurse switched up the medicines by accident. Like he was s supposed to get like a small doses of medicine. And then there was another similar uh, flask that carried uh, morphine, which he wasn't supposed to have that much. Uh, he was supposed <laughs> to have like a, a full flask of the one medicine and then right. a little bit of morphine to take the edge of, and she switched them around. And he, wanting to protect her, kind of stages his own suicide. And so the rest of the story then is no longer really, or at least it seems to be no longer really about the murder mystery, but rather about right. can she 
get away with this. Is is the detective Benoit Blanc gonna find out that she was involved? And so it becomes this very different cat and mouse game that I really enjoyed. And then somehow yeah. at the end, there's still there's like this Shyamalan move where he pulls off another <laughs> twist where he, we actually get some new information about what actually happened, which wasn't as clear as it was initially assumed. It was like he right. used the analog, uh, the, the the Benoit Blanc talked about the donut, donut and the hole in the middle. And, and then you think you have the hole was filled, but then the, the filling turned out to be another smaller donut, which had its own <laughs> hole in the, in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end, it turned out to be a uh, spoiler alert, but uh, Chris Evans, who was like the more typical bad guy. And I liked that the, yeah. the movie was basically this deconstruction of all these kind of also kind of these political cultural figures like there's the the nazi right. child and the the lefty progressive social justice warrior who's also kind of not always as who's a bit of a hypocrite at sometimes there's the all of them kind of are hypocrites uh, with the the one uh, this the self-made woman who started with the one million dollar loan and you know it's it's, it's a, basically a deconstruction yeah. of all these characters and then the movie to me it, it ends very nicely with this affirmation of the basically the nurse type character and the kind of kindness and honesty that she stands for. And right. I really love that it's also her actions as being a genuinely good person is actually what leads the movie to its kind of happy ending, I'd say. Right, right. Yeah. I'm not sure that captures it pretty much, I think. Yeah, that. Yeah, I think I think that sums up enough, yeah. uh, at least how it relates to this this film which kind of like is yeah. doing something similar but a little a little bit different in terms of its approach yeah i wanted to recap this because i think that indeed with the second movie or this uh, new mystery where we have only have benoit blanc who goes into this new mystery but then i felt like there was some elements that weren't as clearly communicated as they were in the first movie it also maybe it right. was lacking a little bit of that heart that what's the actress name who played the nurse anna de armas anna de armas yeah. yeah she brought a lot of heart and kind of groundedness into that movie that i felt was yeah slightly absent here but i like that this movie did have a similar twist but it's structured differently it's not yeah yeah especially on rewatch and now we're moving into spoiler territory for glass onion maybe do the first the setup first we have these we basically have Miles Braun, who is this super rich billionaire, visionary person, and he, he invites his close circle of, or his close, like inner circle of friends who call themselves the disruptors to this private island for a fun weekend getaway and to yeah. play this murder mystery game that he set up. Uh, and at first it seems like Benoit Blanc is also invited, if not only as like a power move, like, oh, we have the great detective at my little game because I have money and can do whatever I want. Yeah. And so all these, these friends, they all, like in the first Knives Out, they also kind of, as we talked about, reflect these different political and cultural archetypes, I guess, or the things that are currently happening you know that's kind of the setup like they all receive this box right. it is this puzzle box that's the invitation and it seems like he's this real genius who is able to construct all these intricate mysteries and that's what brings them to the island benoit blanc is also going there and then it turns out he wasn't invited and he comes to sense that there might be a real threat against his life or against the life of miles braun and that's the right right initial set up set up yeah yeah my, my my favorite moment out of the the opening is just the visual of all these different people slaving over cracking this these intricate codes or whatever uh mm -hmm. which which uh benoit blanc later calls simple child's puzzles <laughs> although spoiler we eventually find out he didn't actually do any of them so he he couldn't have known if they were or not but they probably were based on how easily he he busts through any of the other puzzles later on and also because of duke's mother who keeps calling out like yes yeah, oh, it's yeah. a stereogram or, or something <laughs> yeah. like that there's a lot of little hints that all of the complexity that you see is actually not that complex at all if you really right dive into it but that becomes more relevant later janelle monet 
as Andy at this point in the film is smack just like instead of she like looks at the box mm-hmm. and is like no I'm not I'm not dealing with this and just takes a hammer to it and smashes it open which is which is a nice little piece of kind of foreshadowing and uh, just kind of sets up sort of I think the thesis of the whole film to some degree uh, or like sets up this initial image that is then later reflected towards the end. But yeah, mm-hmm. we get all these people onto Miles Braun's giant glass onion island. He's going to throw this dinner party mystery thing for the weekend. Who knows? Somebody might actually yeah. want to kill him. And Blanca ruins it like within seconds. That That's one of my favorite moments from the early part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> He solves the mystery before before the game really even starts mm. and wins himself an iPad. <laughs> but then I think like this is where I kind of struggle. Maybe I'll throw out my kind of critique or what I struggle with was this movie before we actually mm-hmm. get into sort of what it's doing thematically and whether or not that works. But like I think for me, like I, I thought a lot watching it both times or after the first viewing and then watching it the second time, I was thinking a lot about why exactly it didn't quite work for me in the same way that the, the first one did, because mm-hmm. it left me unsatisfied on some level. But I ultimately think not in the way that was intended, because I think there's an element of that where Ryan Johnson is constantly kind of setting up these things like, oh, it's this crazy mystery. And then what he's doing is essentially trying to say like, no, it's actually not that mysterious and complex. It's mm-hmm. actually just... Benoit Blanc says at the end, which we'll get to, it's just dumb. And so that's that's a maneuver that he's he's trying to do in the movie. And I think he does that well at certain points where you're like, ooh, what's the mystery going to be? And then you're kind of like disappointed by the fact that, no, it's not actually this crazy thing. It's just it's just this dumb, simple thing that someone who's looking a little bit deeper can just get, you know, figure out pretty easily. So I kind of mm-hmm. I kind of like that premise, but one of the effects that maybe this has, or I don't know how you would have done it differently, but I think what's missing for me is it feels like it takes so long to get to any sort of actual mystery at the heart of this movie. And so instead of like, instead of actually establishing a real mystery early on and then showing that that mystery is in fact uh, empty and false and dumb, like... It just feels like I'm constantly waiting to get to the real mystery and it doesn't really come until like an hour and 10 minutes into the movie, which is where there's, you know, this bigger twist. But there's no body. There's not even like like an essential element of, I think, the mystery genre in a way is like there's a body and then we're trying to figure out who killed Mm -hmm. this person. There's not even a body until Duke Cody dies like almost an hour into the movie that death you can pretty pretty immediately feels like a red herring you're like it's not the real so anyway all this to say i think you know he's trying to set up the mystery of like who is gonna try to kill miles braun but i don't know for whatever reason i think that created some sense of like it just felt like constantly stuck in setup i had it on the first viewing where i was watching it with my fiance and we were both like oh just like we're like an hour into this movie and there's not been right, a murder yeah. yet or anything. Yeah. But the second time I did notice, uh, like th- there's a few details that already hint at the structure. Like in the initial puzzle, they solve the four, like I think four puzzles and then they turn it north or something. And then there's a new layer that reveals like a right. whole new set of mysteries. And that's kind of what happens in the movie structurally, where the twist that you mentioned uh, doesn't, it it happens at the exact, almost at the exact midpoint of the movie. And I know that because I paused it to go to the bathroom. I looked at the Netflix (laughs) like timeline and says like, I had like, I'd seen uh, an hour and 10 minutes and I had exactly like an hour and 10 minutes to go. So it's, it's literally like the center point of the movie or the midpoint that shakes things up and kind of flips the board around again or the game around and then begins start pretty much starts from the beginning again with a new perspective because you know for those if you've seen it you know at the midpoint it's revealed that Benoit Blanc actually got the box from Chanel's twin sister I'm forgetting what her name was maybe Helen or something yeah it doesn't say on IMDb because Janelle is just credited as Andy 
But yeah, Andy has a twin sister. Mm-hmm. We didn't say this, but hopefully people have seen the movie if they're watching this. Like Andy is sort of the co-founder with Miles Braun of his company, but then she was ousted. We don't really know why at first, or there was some kind of separation between them. So she's not really- She was uh, social networked, as they right. say. She was not supposed to be there, but she just kind of shows up. And at first we're not sure what's going on, what the tension is, why things are so tense. You might even have this seed of like, oh, maybe she's the one who wants to kill mm. Miles. But then at this, at a certain point, it's revealed that Andy Brand is actually dead. Somebody killed her. That's kind of the real mystery. Her twin sister, Helen, has learned that she died and is coming to Benoit Blanc, this invitation. And so he's, they are both coming to the island. They've both come to the island as on this kind of covert mission to figure out who really killed Andy. And yeah, like you said, that comes pretty much at the heart of it's the pull up the center part and then mm-hmm. all these other puzzles unravel. Yeah. I do like it in hindsight because it does feel like it makes, you know, those kinds of twists are hard to do. Like there's movies that have where the point of view character or like the main character has some kind of twist at the end that completely changes the motivations, at least in the perception right. of the audience. And they're kind of hard to pull off. I, like I think the, the tourist with Johnny Depp tried to do that a little bit, which wasn't a great success as far as I can remember. But um, this is not exactly the same. It's, it doesn't happen until the, at the very end, but rather at the midpoint. And it does feel very in character. He does explain at the beginning specifically like he's, or Benoit Blanc explains, like he's not looking for a vacation. He's not looking for a game. He wants a real challenge. He wants a real case. Right. So initially it might seem odd that he would go on a vacation to play a game with this billionaire. And so with the twist, the it actually kind of makes it feel like his actions were more in character than they initially is, appeared, where yeah. it, he was actually going on this literal case. He actually had a mystery to solve. And what I also liked about him, I, I, I really love him as a character, by the way, and the way he's played by He's uh, great Daniel Craig. He seems to have so much fun yeah. with it and you can just see it on the screen. But the, the one thing that I think distinguishes him from other uh, detective type characters is that he also f- has a very strong sense of righteousness and he feels he's very empathetic and he, he's not just like a detached observer of society like some so many others. He's actually engaged and that's why he, he's really affirmative of the nurse character in the first movie and here he's also really involved with not just fixing the puzzle but he also wants justice like he's really out to do some good instead of just playing around with his own intelligence so to say to me that's also what feels really in character here that he he's, he's not just there to play a game he's actually there to help this woman who has no other recourse and so initially i liked that twist a lot because it again it felt like he was that's more the the benoit blanc thing to do and also it makes that it makes the whole first half of the movie feel more deliberate on their part like they're not just kind of these passive members of this party and with Benoit Blanc kind of being the fish out of water who's uh, invited but then not really and so he kind of wanders around uh, to make himself at home and kind of participate a little bit but he's actually a more active protagonist and you see little details on if you're watching it again, knowing that there's like, you can see like the cutoff points and the little glances and there's little hints there where you can see on a second viewing that he's actually being more perceptive and more on a mission yeah. than you would yeah, s- yeah. assume on a first viewing. So that that's one part I liked. Yeah, It did work better for me on a second viewing, I think, because I knew what was coming and it because here's here's kind of this, I mean, maybe we can just get down to it, like kind of part of the central tension. When you set up a mystery in this way that is essentially a glass onion, it's hard to not, you want people to feel like, oh, I kind of saw it coming or like it is as obvious, it is kind of obvious in a way, like that's the point he's trying to make. But you mm-hmm. also don't want to just make the movie be obvious and what you, exp- or you have to still entertain people or make a movie that is, isn't just dumb. Yeah, the yeah. movie itself has to be intriguing or interesting on some level. I think for whatever reason, it didn't quite connect with me in that way. The first, I mean, I had fun watching it, 
but I didn't entirely connect with it. But on the second time around, I think there's enough details there, enough that's interesting in how it's structured and how those details are present. I think it's just one movie mm -hmm. that for some reason early on, I don't think it quite clues you in enough to what you're actually trying to look for it's that I felt like I could engage with it, but maybe I just missed something or who knows. Anyway, subjective. Yeah. All that to say, I think there's some very interesting stuff there, even if it didn't quite resonate with me or or engage me in the mystery the first time around. Yeah, I think the issue is that you're basically looking for anti-meaning and that's the meaning in the sense right. like in the first yeah. movie, you had all these little details and they all led to something like every little tangent eventually connected back to some as some little yeah. piece in like the bigger puzzle but here it's kind of the opposite here you have an absent absence of a puzzle and but you do have like all these little pieces and they kind of lead to nowhere and so but you're you're still making a puzzle but as you're making it you realize there's no picture at the end so like maybe one piece will right. be an, of an entirely different puzzle or another piece will just be an apple or whatever like completely unrelated yeah. to even making a puzzle but and then if the <laughs> yeah like if the point is that there is no picture at the end like in a way like following the pieces that don't go to that picture does affirm that but at the same time you're still left with no completed puzzle in your like that right. it's not satisfying in the same way that yeah. a completed puzzle would be like for example yeah, yeah. you have the Derek character I think it was like initially when they get to the island Miles Braun is like oh it's just us friends here and like no one to disturb us and then there's this stoner dude that walks into frame and then Miles right. is like oh that's whatever he's just, he's just not part of him. the yeah. he's not part of the experience and so you're as an audience member then you looking for puzzles in a murder mystery movie you're thinking right. like oh how is this gonna fit into what piece of the yeah. puzzle is this towards the end and then at the end it turns out he's just there he doesn't really do anything right. there's no resolution <laughs> yeah. to his presence on the island yeah. and so you can argue oh you know you know that's the point he's he's literally not part of the experience this Miles says it explicitly that's this isn't some layered complex complex message again it's a glass onion like what you see is what you get it's just dumb yeah. he's on the island doing his own thing it's not related that's like the whole point of it is that a satisfying image to right. have at the end i'll say this and then i'll kind of close the book on like my mm -hmm. critique or criticism here because i want to get into sort of i think what the commentary is because mm -hmm. i think that's probably the most interesting part of this discussion but i think ultimately like i'm fine with the end note being unsatisfying it felt almost to me like i there wasn't enough setup for it didn't feel like there was something there that was then falling apart to me it mm. felt like it never quite completely got established or it was deconstructed as things were established i don't know but i don't know how i would fix it either i can't really say like mm. what would have made this better so there was some disconnect there and I, i'm not sure what yeah i didn't mind this as much because i do think as you wanted to get into it, it does relate to some commentary more right. than Johnson's work in the past maybe like I'm, I'm thinking of The Last Jedi I don't want to get into that movie too much but I, I think it's the most interesting movie of that new trilogy but also one that I disliked or disliked because it felt like it was just deconstructing things for the sake of it and especially like I would have felt different about it if we didn't have a very nostalgia driven movie just beforehand like if this was the beginning of a new trilogy that would use this like oh you know here's this Snoke bad guy leader right. and then Johnson comes in and he's like nope he doesn't mean anything <laughs> right yeah and like that at that point I wonder like if you're gonna tell a story like that just include it at all like why even it always feels kind of a little bit condescending at times when people are like oh we're gonna introduce this trope and then we're gonna subvert it and that's it instead of just not use the trope and subvert it by having by doing something interesting or original instead that would right. usually have my preference but uh yeah bringing this back to glass onion i do think there was a specific type of commentary that was this whole deconstruction was aimed at and that does feel somewhat culturally relevant like there's some parts where i felt like especially at the end at, or at the very end uh, the, the part with the specifically the part with the mona lisa where i was like uh what is this like really a message or is this just uh, whatever like right yeah deconstruction for the sake of it yeah yeah 
But I think overall, like for me, I think the most interesting commentary is has to do with the kind of the people we admire as glass onions in a society. In that sense, like there's a lot of, you know, we talked about Elon Musk, but there's a lot of figures like him, I think. Yeah. In various different cultural or political uh, areas that that you could also apply this, the kind of glass onion metaphor to. And I think in that sense, deconstructing that and revealing the emptiness inside does come with or does carry a significance or a meaning that you then kind of inversely that that does carry meaning in the real world, even right. though it, it's yeah. telling you it has no meaning at all. But you know what I mean? In the film. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm realizing now kind of as you're saying that, that maybe that that is sort of where this fell a little bit flat for me because there's mm-hmm. not what the central thing that this movie is subverting. It wasn't really subverting for me. And maybe this coming in the wake of like Elon's Twitter situation hmm. actually hurt it in a sense because there's kind of this, the, the central deconstruction is, oh, Miles isn't actually this brilliant guy. We've kind of, Blanc even says it at one point, he's talking with Helen and they're saying, oh, it could be Miles. It, it could be Miles. And Blanc is like, it wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense that he would do it. So... It's not impossible, but mm-hmm. they kind of assume that it's somebody else because they're like, Miles is smarter than that, is the assumption. And then we're deconstructing that assumption throughout the movie. I, like, I'm thinking that maybe I, because the parallels were being drawn between Miles and Elon Musk already before I even watched this, and the cultural moment is sort of this revelation of, you know, Elon Musk is maybe not as smart as all mm-hmm. these people thought he was because he's publicly playing out this this disaster of trying to take over this company. I don't know if that seed planted in my mind when Miles shows up on screen. I'm not thinking, wow, here's a brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. And then finding out later in the movie, he's he's actually dumb. I'm kind of thinking, oh, this is sort of a joker character to begin with that i'm not supposed to take that seriously so i don't know if that like left it a little empty for me where where what the movie is trying to subvert the most i was already kind of thinking along those lines he's already presented as kind of a caricature and not as this genuine mastermind or genius yeah which does i I get what you i get what you're saying i didn't really feel that way myself that much I think also mainly because this whole franchise is so filled with these heightened caricatures caricatures that I didn't really like. I I didn't really feel like I was supposed to buy into his genius initially. And there's also like a lot of these little hints where in the flashback scenes in one of one of them, you'll see him have like the outfit that Steve Jobs had. And there's another one where (laughs) a little bit more obscure, but where he in the initial flashback in the bar where he's he looks exactly like Tom Cruise in Magnolia. Uh, who, right. who in that movie plays this misogynistic <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> alpha male right. pickup artist slash yeah. course seller. <laughs> and so there's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of, already like a lot of hints that he, he's not this genuine genius. He's just this kind of right imposter uh, figure almost. But Which fits with the glass onion nature of mm-hmm. the movie where, you know, in, in a sense, I kind of like the fact that it's setting him up in that. This is where I'm. Vi- I'm extremely conflicted. Sorry, if, sorry if my commentary about this movie is all over the place for people listening to this because I've have very genuinely conflicted feelings about this movie. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, what I just described leaves me feeling unsatisfied, and on the other hand, I can think about that and kind of go, that makes a lot of sense within what the movie is trying to say. Because from the beginning, he seems kind of suspect and dumb, or not as brilliant as maybe you're supposed to think he is and then by the end that's revealed and you're like okay i saw that the whole time and that's the na- you know that's the nature of the, mm. gl- the onion being glass maybe it actually works <laughs> maybe it doesn't <laughs> i want to discuss like this so we we talked about kind of this we've already mentioned this revelation miles is already dumb or is just dumb he says words wrong he didn't actually mm. start the company and he did there's he didn't write the mystery. He didn't make the mystery box. There's all these 
things that reveal he's more just like opportunistic exploitation of the resources around him than than anything else but all these people in his central circle they vie for him or they lie for him in court they do all these things because he has this leverage over them and they've also bought into sort of this artifice this sense that he is this brilliant mastermind on some level so that's one of the central critiques of the film is just critiquing those kinds of characters the ones we mm -hmm. hold up simply because they're successful and then we go oh because they're successful they must be brilliant and then we interpret everything they do as brilliant because we're presupposing it's brilliant because they've been successful. So there's kind of a systemic critique there of, I think, success and meritocracy and sort of saying our culture isn't as much a meritocracy as we often think it is, or at least, mm -hmm. you know, capitalistic Western culture is not as much a meritocracy as, as we might imagine sometimes. Uh, and some of these things that we think this person's playing some kind of brilliant 5D chess, it's hmm. it's much simpler and dumber than that. Yeah. So I think that's the core <laughs> at the center of this yeah. glass onion. If you have thoughts on that, I'd be I'd love to hear them. But I'd also be interested in talking about maybe w anything else that you see this movie kind of commenting on or what some of the other commentary is. Yeah, I, I think in, addi in addition to what you just said, one small detail that I really like, you mentioned the, the 4D chess game. There's the, right. I got this from the IMDb trivia. I didn't figure this out on my own, but uh, in the initial puzzle that they have to solve to open the box for the invitation, there's a chess setup that they have to solve. And apparently that setup is called uh, a fool's mate, uh, which is the, oh, nice. according to IMDb, the fastest possible ending to a match. And it's so named because it's practically impossible to win this way unless the losing player is ignorant or inattentive enough to set themselves up for it. So wow. that's also yeah. kind of, I like that was also a metaphor for the way Benoit Blanc kind of walks into this game uh, or right. into this mystery, expecting much more intricacies and complexities and right. ends up being played by by the fool's mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, regarding what you said about specifically also um, Miles's relation to his disruptor crew, Yeah, there's also like, to me, what that also really showed is that he's not just this, you know, he's a glass onion. Like he's this obvious guy, almost like a con artist um, or imposter or, but he's also, you can also see that he does have, or through his like friends, that he does have like a bad effect or like a degrading effect on society as a whole, because you can see uh, all of them the whole crew that they have is basically held together by them depending on his money and depending on his grace, right. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get this societal setup where a lot of these different elements, like from politics to cultural figures to like science people are dancing to the tune of this kind of person, which I do not think is a very desirable position for a society to be in. Because I did feel right. some sympathy for some of the characters, at least, that were in this disruptor group, like the polit politician who does, uh, you know, she's not like, doesn't seem like the most genuine do-gooder that, you know, it's no Leslie right. Nope from Parks and Rec or something, but you can clearly see that she is very negatively affected by having to do whatever uh, Miles wants her to do. With the whole, that's the whole thing with the clear. We haven't named it yet, but basically, right. Miles wants this. The reason for the uh, initial conflict that he had with Janelle is that he basically found out about this very unstable form of energy that he wanted to bring to market. Obviously, like in his enthusiasm, more uncritically and faster than everyone else would argue for, and that's why she left. And but they, the other um, characters, they kind of stuck with him. And now she, the, the politician feels stuck because she has to promote his source of energy or else there'll be trouble. Like the, the science guy is also depending on his money and research funds or whatever or else. He'll be in trouble. And the influencer, uh, Birdie, she's just like, she's the kind of person who would be canceled and never heard from again were it not for right. someone like uh, Miles kind of bailing her out culturally uh, speaking. The same with uh, Duke's character. He's kind of given a platform because of him, and otherwise he would just have to get a normal job or something. I, I don't know. Yeah. But 
I like that the, through this whole dynamic, you can see the way billionaires or like these type of bill, specific type of figures are not just like benignly dumb or jokers to be laughed at, but they also have a societal impact that's not to be underestimated and ignored. Yeah. And I like that the movie does, it's not as explicit as a true like societal commentary, but it does uh, display those dynamics a little bit in uh, in a way that I did think was interesting. It yeah. adds a little bit to it. It's not just, oh, billionaires are dumb. Ha ha ha. Right. Let's have a laugh at them. It also shows like yeah. why it's important to reveal the glass onions for what they are, because they do have an impact right. on the rest of us. And they do, yeah. uh, they, they are in powerful positions that can affect us all. And we should be more mindful of that. I guess that's what is yeah. um, being said there. Well, and it's kind of, it's kind of pointing the most explicit, explicit part of it is pointing towards the sort of converse to what all those people are doing, which is, you know, talked about the imagery at the beginning, they're all playing his little games. And mm-hmm. then you have Brandy or Helen, actually, who is just going to smash it up because those games aren't working for her. So, you know, she's willing to smash the glass, bust everything apart to get to whatever's at the core because, you know, why would she play these games? They aren't working for her. So I think it's not just saying, hey, all these people are benefiting, have this parasitic relationship to Miles Braun and are benefiting from them, and but also reinforcing his status. There's kind of this nod towards... The only way to sort of escape this trap is to stop playing the game, like stop playing his, stop engaging with his games. You don't, you don't need mm. to play, play them. Uh, so I think, I think that's interesting. And I like that it, I really appreciate that it has this more comprehensive critique of sort of the system surrounding billionaires and sort of critiquing that because I think without that, the message is kind of empty and hollow and is sort of the ha-ha billionaires are dumb mm-hmm. kind of thing, which I think can be unproductive because there's a sense in which I think if it didn't have that, you could almost read this movie as like, oh, Miles Miles Braun is a problem because he's an idiot. If he was actually this smart, then everything about him would be fine. It's like, it's because he's an idiot that we don't have to respect him. And I think that's a little bit of a trap sometimes where in order to like critique, you know, the ultra wealthy or something, we have to paint them as idiots or or mm. horrible malicious people when sometimes they are, but it's not just that that makes them a problem. It's the whole structure of power that allows them to sort of have achieved that status in the first place. At least that's my read. And so I feel like, you know, just pointing fingers at them and sort of being like, oh, these people are idiots is a little bit of, you know, it's not, you you can do that. There's nothing wrong with it, Mm. but it's a little bit shallow ultimately sort of as a societal critique, I think. But what, what did you think of the actual ending? Because at the end, Helen, she figures out she finds the the little napkin that has the original idea right. for their company that would we haven't talked about it directly but there's this thing that would prove in court that Miles Braun didn't own the intellectual property that was at the or the intellectual foundation of their business that she set up with her twin sister but it was actually her idea and that he stole it but Miles then burns yeah. it it's a little like a contrived little moment but it's right. uh, you know I think all murder movies uh, or mystery movies have <laughs> yeah, yeah. some degree of that. I'm yeah. willing to f- forgive that, but but then yes. like from there, like the the climax reaches this kind of impasse where Benoit Blanc also says like, okay, I've solved everything I can do. Like I, this is where my jurisdiction ends. We don't have enough proof essentially yeah. to like get the police involved or really do anything. Yeah. So he's just kind of like, over to you, Helen. <laughs> Here's yeah. the whiskey. Do whatever you want. And that, that's for me where the movie probably, that that's the part that I have the most conflicted feelings about. Like, I'm not sure, you know, because what happens is Helen starts pushing over these glass statues and then she uses a little bit of the fuel, that the unstable fuel to, that, right. that's, by the way, running the entire 
mansion on the private island and yeah. she pretty much blows the whole place up and then there's the Mona Lisa behind protected glass and but Miles had this little override button she presses it and then the Mona Lisa also goes up in flames uh, thereby fulfilling the prophecy that Miles had right. of <laughs> wanting to be named forever be named in the same breath as the Mona Lisa but it fulfills it and not in the way that he probably envisioned it yeah. but to me I feel like there's a very knee-jerk reaction to that moment where you feel like i think that's the reason why a lot of more conservative reviewers like ben shapiro did this horrible take on this movie but <laughs> yeah i'm not surprised kind of <laughs> upset by this movie because there is a reading i think here where it feels very much like the lefty progressive answer to like aha like screw traditions and all the classical art i want right. to have my gotcha moments Just blow like, it up. yeah i want to yeah. Let's let's burn it all so that I can feel self-righteous about what I did, or at least about bringing like this billionaire down like a bag. I'm not sure. I don't think that's the intended reading of that moment. Like there is that earlier analogy of the disruptor philosophy where Miles explains right. uh, somewhat incorrectly, apparently, as Benoit Blanc later reveals. But at least in his perception or in Miles's perception, the disruptor philosophy is that you begin with breaking like a few small things that people wanted to have broken anyways. And that's how you kind of reach your infraction point. Right. Whatever that means, or like that's your gateway yeah. into becoming a true disruptor. And that's, you can see that reflected at the end. She's pushing down the statues. Everyone else is like cheering her on and they kind of join in like the other characters. They also want to express their anger a little bit. But then uh, what he also said earlier is that then you break something that nobody wants broken and that's when you receive right. like hostility that's when people don't like you anymore uh, yeah. because that's what reveals that people you know they want to rebel a little bit they want to revolt but they don't truly want to break the system and so i feel like that sort of comes back at the end where you have that initial moment where you're like cheering with helen like oh yeah let's break his those empty. sure let's smash the banksies yeah yeah let's break that down but then when it comes to the mona lisa i think a lot of people were like oh no not not that one though yeah yeah <laughs> i'd be interested to discuss what you think the actual meaning of that is but i think at on a very basic level it at least works as sort of a fun like ryan johnson is kind of playing with the audience at that point to he's intentionally setting something up that most people i think are going to cringe a little bit and be like oh no don't don't burn the Mona Lisa because that's kind of the feeling he's playing with of like, okay, we like the rebellion. We might even get on board or cheer on the disrupt, the, the quote unquote true disruption of the system. But then you get to, we all have our part of the system or the establishment or whatever that is kind of precious to us and where mm -hmm. we go, ooh, oh, do we really have to go after that thing though? And I think that's an interesting discussion. But I, at the very least, I like that he's kind of poking and prodding the audience a little bit to make us, you kind of are left with having to think about, mm -hmm. okay, where are my boundary lines? Like, what kind of disruption am I comfortable with? But I don't know, you know, you definitely could sort of walk away with this, with the feeling of like, Ryan Johnson thinks we should just burn it all down. That's mm -hmm. the best, that's the best move. Yeah. Because that's kind of literally what the, the what uh, Helen does. Yeah, I, I think you were right with that first part where it. I think the main goal was to have people reflect on the moment they would stop cheering when someone revolts against the system. There's a more like in-universe explanation for why it was important to destroy it because right. of there's it's kind of suggested that this fuel is going to be powering all the people's homes at some point and it will be like the hindenburg but in every right. house of everyone and so you can argue that oh we need like to put a hard stop to this transition and so we need yeah. something important and dramatic and so you can see the burning of the mona lisa as like cutting off an arm to save the rest of the body but that, to me, that didn't feel as impactful to me because I, I didn't feel like the thread of the world actually going to blow up if nothing else happens was... It didn't seem that credible. Right, yeah, yeah. But that might be because I'm in Europe and billionaires don't have that kind of pull here. <laughs> like, right. like he'd, yeah. he'd have to apply to like a lot of commissions and safety nets. Right. And, yeah, and yeah. There's like layers <laughs> of safeguards yeah. before something like that could actually happen. And so I don't feel in 
in that sense, the burning of the Mona Lisa is a was like an absolute necessity. It's like this, this has to happen now or else the world is doomed. Like it didn't feel to me like that kind of scenario, even though yeah. I, I, I have seen some people make make that argument. It's also, you know, it's a mystery comedy movie where everything's heightened and yeah. supposed to be exciting. So I think there's a little bit of danger of trying to draw too direct of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely, you know, he's definitely trying to comment on some he's definitely making a commentary i think with how the end is structured so because you you can also read it as for example when you have when people talk about the cutting down of the rainforests or like environmental issues and they're like oh no i don't want that to happen i want that to stop and then but then like some organization will be like oh maybe stop eating meat and then people will be like oh no not 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 that way yeah that's my mona lisa (laughs) (laughs) that's my mona lisa (laughs) bacon is my mona lisa yeah it's extremely valid territory to explore that kind of boundary of where, mm-hmm. what are we precious with and why are we precious about it? And that's that's something that Ryan Johnson has explored in the past, even like The Last Jedi, I think he, he was playing with some of that. But yeah, it makes people uncomfortable and yeah. it's it's kind of uh, interesting territory to, to play yeah. in. I'm curious what you think of sort of the more explicit commentary he makes less metaphorically with the plot, but there's those lines where Miles burns the napkin. I think the way it's supposed to be is nobody else actually saw the napkin besides Miles and Helen Mm. before he burns it. But she's kind of asking everybody to vouch for the existence of the napkin. Like, you lied in court, you know the truth, so would you be willing to sort of back me in this situation and expose Miles as a fraud. And she says the line, you would lie for a lie, but you wouldn't lie for the truth. So mm. she's kind of setting up this this thing of, oh, you were willing to go into court and lie because it fulfilled your selfish ends of accomplishing this specific you know, it fulfilled, it got, you got kickback from Miles for it. And then as soon as she's like, hey, will you back me up on the fact that the napkin was real? They're all kind of like, oh, uh, but, but we didn't, we didn't really see it. That would be a lie to say that we actually saw it. And then she's kind of calling out that hypocrisy, which is something I think I, you see people do, I won't name any names, but you see people hmm. do uh, from time to time where they have a standard where they're like, I'll play this game and bend the rules a little bit where it suits me. And then as soon as somebody's like, well, you could bend the rules for this. Also, for this reason, they're like, oh, uh, actually, I care a lot about the rules because I'm a very principled person. Yeah. That is an interesting sort of call out. And then it flips after the glass onion blows up and they're all walking down onto the steps. Then the different people in Miles's group are kind of like, oh, I saw him driving to. They they say these things that they didn't actually see. Yeah, then they switch him the glass with uh, Duke's character, right. which actually it, it happens the first time you see that moment. It does show the thing that actually happens. You can spot it, like okay, Miles nice, actually yeah. putting the glass in his hand on the first viewing and the first the moment it happens for the first time, which right I thought was really funny. But but yeah, go ahead. Anyway, I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that, because I think that's an interesting commentary as well, which is kind of, I don't know what exactly he's trying to say there, but I think it's an interesting sort of territory to explore of Mm -hmm. like, you know, is fudging the rules, quote unquote, a little bit for to achieve your what you know is the truth. Okay to do, or you know, or maybe he's just pointing to certain kinds of hypocrisy. I don't know. I think it sort of extends the Mona Lisa. Like, is can the Mona burning of the Mona Lisa be okay to achieve some greater good? In this case, the downfall of this uh, glass onion billionaire. Uh, like, can right. you do a little bit of harm to achieve something good? Um, I have to admit that last moment went over my head a little bit. I thought because they were all in the same room when she revealed the napkin right like they didn't see it up close and personal maybe but i figured that they said that they didn't see the napkin because they were kind of playing to uh, they were still like under the wing of miles they were just saying just as they right. were on the court like they they saw it but they didn't really they they, they were just saying yeah. like don't worry miles we didn't see anything even though we just stared at it and we saw exactly what happened so so yeah i, I must say that moment didn't really land for me in that 
uh, in that sense. Yeah. I could be misreading it too. I might be reading too much into that specific line mm. about lying for a lie and then lying for the truth. I think it was maybe more that lie in the sense that now, now that I think of it, you might be right, but I, I think I assumed it in the sense like that they had to lie because there was no longer any physical evidence. So that right, but then it wouldn't be a lie; they would be just be telling the truth without yeah backup. But um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's an yeah. extension of what I just said. Like, how far would you be willing to go for your own principles? Would you do like? I mean, it might be the flip side of it. Like, what would you what good thing would you sacrifice to disrupt the system and what kind of right. harm would you be yeah. or what kind of bad would you be doing or what lines would you cross personally to to disrupt this no but that's not a disruption yeah maybe even that like it's very <laughs> yeah that's a that's how i feel too i'm yeah. not sure exactly what he might be getting at with that but i do think i do think at the very least it's an interesting nod towards sort of a maneuver that i do see people do a lot which is They'll draw, they'll say, ooh, I'm going to take this per principled stand of mm -hmm. I never lie or something. Yep. But they'll only apply that in the areas where, you know, it's it's already serving them. So mm -hmm. they were fully willing to lie to uphold the system, but they're absolutely not willing to lie in order to tear down the system. So I think it works as kind of a critique of that sort of hypocrisy. Yeah. I don't know. I think drawing an, another connecting yet another dot there to say like he's promoting sort of this ethos of like lying would be okay in order to i don't know you know i don't know if that's what he's getting at but um yeah i think one other thing like there was another reading that i had of the mona lisa burning that maybe relates to that which is that he doesn't there's a difference between promoting something by showing it and by maybe or instead of that uh warning against something like you can see it as maybe you can argue like the burning of the Mona Lisa that that's Johnson arguing like, oh, that's what has to happen for the system to be burned down or to be disrupted. Yeah. Or you can maybe say, say like, oh, that's we enact this sequence or this like uh, chain of events in fiction so that we can go on a different path in reality that we maybe... Don't let it go as far that we would need to burn or to sacrifice the Mona Lisa in order to disrupt the system. Like if we can see right. the glass onion for what it is, then it doesn't have to get to this point. And so yeah. in that yeah. sense, it might not be a call to action as much as it is a don't go here, be mindful, right. be be sure you don't end up in this place kind of message, yeah. which is yeah. slightly different, but more, um, it would seem more like maybe empathetic on Johnson's end than just saying like, haha, Mona Lisa's burned. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and the, the billionaire's dunked on that. Like that's... Right. <laughs> that, that, I, I agree that's yeah. the kind of, the, the more condescending view or, yeah. Yeah, that feels like the shallower version of the movie, but I don't know. what Whatever Johnson was thinking in his mind when he wrote this is not, I, I don't want to make it seem like that's what it's coming down to in terms of, uh, whether or not this was like a good successful movie. I'm just interested in talking about that because I think it's fascinating to think about what the implications here are if you read this movie in a very literal way mm -hmm. uh, and and what he might be what he might be saying with it. Fun time. I think it's a fun movie and thought provoking even if you cringe when the Mona Lisa is burned. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, definitely a movie that challenges you to reflect on certain issues about the way we tend to put certain people on pedestals and have this, not just a relation with them that's based on worshipping, but also really evaluating on what our worshipping or our putting off on the pedestal of these people means actually means to society, like where the implications yeah. go and how this affects us. And if there really aren't any other different ways and what would happen, like, can we see the warning signs of the real-life glass onions, so to say. And I think in the right. most favorable interpretation of that ending is that then that we do all that so that we don't have to end up burning the Mona Lisa and we can just have it safely in the Louvre and, and <laughs> right. safely in France and Paris and don't have to have these billionaire types coming to even be able to rent the Mona Lisa for a weekend for their own uh, vanity or whatever it is yeah. that they... Uh, want to do with that uh, 
painting. So yeah, that's I think that's my reading of Glass Onion. I liked it. Excited to see what's next. Like I hope I'm hoping we get another Benoit Blanc adventure because I do think I liked him very much as a this more as yeah, as this more empathetic character, slightly more righteous, kind of engaged in the fight and not just the passive observer of the clues. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm hoping uh, I'm excited to see where he's where his journey goes. The real winner for me of the film is is definitely Daniel Craig and the the extent to which he's just absolutely chewing it up <laughs> in every moment of every scene in this film. Uh, he has <laughs> amazing outfits in this movie. Um, so yeah, I'd be happy be happy to see more Daniel Craig, Benoit Blanc, and. And like I said at the beginning, I think this is a fun premise and series to just do contemporary mysteries. So here's to the next one. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to the next episode right now, already available on Nebula. Click the link in the description below to go to nebula.tv slash cinema of meaning. And when you sign up that way, you'll get access to our episodes ad free and a week early and signing up using that link supports us as creators. If you listen through Nebula, you also get access to our monthly bonus episode in December. That was our discussion of Avatar 2, The Way of Water, which I think was a really fun discussion Tom and I had. You can check that out. You can also support the show by signing up for our Patreon. Click the link in the description below for more information about that. Thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you next week.